Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm Kat, your host. And joining me again today is my infallible, bossy, co-host slash producer, Haley. Producer? Yeah, I think we should call you Producer Haley from now on. Because I'm bossy or... (laughs) That's exactly why we should call you Producer Haley. Because you're bossy. I wish that... Maybe we should change to a YouTube channel. And then they can see all the faces you make at me and little hand gestures. You do like the slicing of the throat thing, like cut it off. Well, because if someone someone let you, you would talk about nothing for 45 minutes. You go on tangents. Isn't that why you have a, you get a podcast is so that you can talk about nothing for 45 minutes? Um, no. No. Well, do you, we're still talking about the same story, so you're not, you're not out of the loop with what we're going to be talking about today. Nope. No one should be. And if you are, you need to listen to part one and two. Part one and part two. Before we get started, I wanted to say hi and thank you to a couple Listeners, and first of all, thank you to Anna Lowe uh, with the Facebook page, True Crime Podcast. She did a little highlight of our podcast to let people know who we are. So thank you so much, Anna. I was so excited about that. Uh, I wanted to say hi to Michelle Para and Debbie Mendez, I think. Just a couple of people who found us on Facebook or, well, they didn't really find us. I had posted a question about something and they asked what the podcast was and they are now listening. So hi, you guys. I also wanted to say hi to Nicole's friend, Lisa Savala. She listens to our podcast now. Not only does she listen, but Nicole told me that she binged all our episodes, which is so exciting to me because when I find a new podcast, uh, I binge, like I get really excited if I find it after it's been out for like a year or two years and there's like 64 episodes and um, then I can binge the whole thing and then I'm really bummed at the end. So it's really exciting to know that someone binged our podcast, don't you think? Yeah. So thank you, Lisa, for for listening and for binging us. We're super excited about that. And I think that was all our thank yous for the today. But you get shout outs if you join Patreon, right? You do. You get shout outs. That's true. I forgot. We haven't plugged our Patreon for a while. Long time. Because we're super bad about posting on it right now. Yeah, except there might be bonus content in the next couple of weeks, right? Yeah, we're hoping. I'm really excited to do our next episode. It's a story I guarantee you haven't heard. And uh, I'm trying to set up interviews. I've already talked to one person. And some of the interviews, when we, if we do get to do some of the interviews, some of them may only be available on our Patreon. We really haven't gotten there yet. But it's, an, it's a really good story. It's, a, it's not a paranormal story for sure. But it's a story of, it's a true crime story from... 1980 and I'm super excited about it and I hadn't even finished doing the Lizzie story before we started researching this new one so hopefully you stick around but there I also like to do shout outs to people who join on Instagram if you if you want to shout out if you want us to say hey to you just comment on any of our posts on Instagram all you have to do is say hi and we'll say hi back it's kind of fun that way I like to have the interaction and then we have a Facebook page that you can follow and then we also have a Facebook group that you can join. 
uh, you'll find it through the Facebook page and request to join and Tress will add you. She likes to post different things in that on that group. So go ahead and join us there and say hi and then we can say hi to you on our next episode or one of the next episodes. So today we're talking about, we're in the third part of Lizzie Borden and the aftermath. And I was really surprised by how many people commented or wrote to me that they had no idea that Lizzie was found not guilty. What about you, Haley? Did you know she was found not guilty? Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, you did? Yeah. I was shocked by how many people just assumed she was guilty, probably because of the the rhyme and stuff. Yeah, and I think just because, why not? Who else? They just assumed she did it. A suspect, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I assumed that most people didn't know. I mean, did know that she was found not guilty, but, you know, shocking. A lot of people didn't. So this episode is about the aftermath. Um, And five weeks after the trial, Lizzie, who changed her name to Lisbeth, and Emma purchased and moved into a new house. I mean, clearly, they weren't happy in the old house. And would you stay there? People say one of the reasons why they think she was guilty is because she bought the new house. Really? I don't... That doesn't make sense to me. Well, because they weren't happy... If people think that she killed her dad because of the money and the fact that he had them so living, you know, without running water, without Below bathrooms or like, yeah, mm-hmm. that the first thing she would do, of course, she would go buy a new house. But that's. But also, if two people are murdered in that's your house. That's more the reason why. You want to move, move too. Right. But ironically, where Emma and Elizabeth or Lizzie moved was to the fashionable dis area that we talked about in the first couple episodes so it happened to also be yeah a nicer area they moved to the hill they moved to 906 french street in fall river it was a 13 room stone house it was located on the hill which was the most fashionable area of the city and lizzie named the house maplecroft she had the name carved in the top step leading to the front door recently i wanted to say something about the houses the people who own the lizzie borden bed and breakfast where you can stay where Abby and Andrew were murdered, the same people purchased Maplecroft. Wait, so the house that they were murdered in is a bed and breakfast? Oh, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, the the Lizzie Borden house is a Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. You can go stay in the room. And the most requested room is the room where Abby was murdered. Mm, No? I don't know that I would want to do that. You'll stay in the Cecil Hotel, but you won't. That's different how That's is that not different? someone making money off of people dying well they they're booked all the time i'm sure i'm sure it's, it's very profitable but it seems creepy and nasty well the house me. wasn't that big to begin with so it's and now it's a little tiny bed and breakfast and they the, the same owners purchased the maplecroft house so they're gonna open another bed and breakfast for where lizzie lived the second half of her life they said that the reason they purchased it was their goal was to tell the story of the second part of her life, which was what I just said. How funny. They said that she was a complex character. She's not just an alleged axe murderer. So they wanted to expand their monopoly on the Lizzie Borden tragedy. Mm -hmm. Two years after the murder, uh, Lizzie and Emma also purchased a 10-foot-tall blue granite monument for their famously deceased relatives, spending more than $2,000. But if Lizzie thought that she was going to get a fresh start in town or that during the trial, I think I had mentioned that people were picketing for her and saying free Lizzie and things like that. She probably thought she was going to walk out of there and 
and have supporters. She did not. Yeah. It was the opposite. She, people refused to sit near her in church and children probably daring each other to tempt her would ring her doorbell in the middle of the night and pelt her house with gravel and eggs. So she had no one mm-hmm. when she, except for her sister, Emma, the, the thing that didn't really help Lizzie at all is that in 1997, so three years after the trial, she was charged with a theft of two paintings from a store in Fall River. They never filed any charges, and it's believed that the affair was settled privately, but that didn't help her at all, that that became public knowledge. In 1904, Lizzie and Emma attended a play and were invited backstage to meet the actresses. Um, Lizzie may not be famous, but she was definitely infamous. People knew who she was. She met an actress named Nance O'Neill. And for the next two years, Lizzie and Nance were inseparable. She had parties at her house. She kept let Nance stay there. Nance would have all the theater troops over. It was like a constant party at Maplecroft. About the same time, Emma separated from her sister and moved to Fairhaven, Massachusetts. She lived with another family. They literally stopped speaking to each other and no one to this day knows why. The sisters? The sisters. Emma moved away. And some people blame the whole Nance O'Neill friendship that Lizzie kind of lost herself in that. But here's the thing. And a lot of people say that Lizzie was a lesbian and that Nance O'Neill was her lover. But the thing is, is that Lizzie was ostracized from all she knew. And this theater group were more than willing to accept her. So I think people are jumping to conclusions that there was any kind of a romantic involvement with her new friend. It may have just been that she felt accepted by all these people. It was all she had. Right. And Mm -hmm. maybe on the other side of that coin is that Emma didn't care for it. You know what I mean? Like she was fine with it just being the sisters together. Or it could be more sinister than that. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It could be that the sisters committed the murders together. Who knows? We don't know. So Emma moved, when Emma moved to Fairhaven, she lived with a family of Reverend Buck. And then around 1915, she moved to Newmarket, New Hampshire. And as far as I know, lived by herself with other than a servant. Mm -hmm. Lizzie died on June 1st, 1927 at the age of 67 after a long illness following gallbladder surgery. And the weird thing is, is that Emma died nine days later. They were not even near each other. They were not speaking to each other. Yeah. And she died nine days later as a result of a fall down the back stairs of her house. They were buried together in a family plot along with the sister I had mentioned who had died in early childhood, their mother, their stepmother, and their father. So they were all in the same. They're all buried in the same thing. Both Lizzie and Emma left their estates to charitable causes. Lizzie designated $500 for the perpetual care of her father's grave. Just her father's grave. It doesn't seem like a lot of money, but back then that was a lot of money. Bridget Sullivan never worked. You remember who Bridget Sullivan is? The maid? The maid, yeah. Bridget Sullivan never worked for the Bordens again. After the terrible events of the murder and the trial, she left town. She lived in modest circumstances in Butt, Montana. Butt? I know. B-U-T-T, Montana? Yeah. (laughs) Is it Boot, Montana? I don't know. She lived under modest circumstances in Montana until her death in 1948. Those who suggested that she had been paid off to keep quiet about the murders could find no evidence that of what she left behind. It's been almost 130 years since the murders in Fall River. 
and we still can't be sure of what we know about them. Perhaps because the case remains unsolved, we still have a fascination for the events surrounding the murders. No single theory has ever been regarded as the correct one, and every writer on the case seems to have a favorite culprit. The book I read, The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden in the 12th Century by Sarah Miller, which, by the way, is technically a young adult book. Mm-hmm. It It's sort of the book, everything, you know, I, I have to be picky about what books I read about whatever episode we're doing because I can't read a novel in the few days that I have. So I always research the books because there's just so many. This one came up as sort of the the end all for the Lizzie Borden, even though it's a, a young adult book, it's quick reading for sure. Uh, it covers really every angle of it. So I'm glad that's the one that I chose, but the books and articles that have followed the events have each put their own special spin on the story. They use the same evidence and the same testimony to argue different suspicions of who really killed Abby and Andrew during the early days of the investigation and well into the days of the trial, a number of accusations have been made. At times, the killer was said to have been John Morse, Bridget Sullivan, Emma Borden, Dr. Bowen, which is just ridiculous, and even one of Lizzie's Sunday school students was... Seems random. Yeah. Some of the theories are credible and some clearly are not. One of the theories remains that Lizzie Borden actually committed the murders of her parents and managed to get away with it. Now, that's obviously the biggest one. The theory was especially popular in books written before 1940. And it still turns up occasionally today. Most of the writers who stand by this solution see the court rulings and the poorly executed prosecution of the, as the case that Lizzie was never found guilty. They refuse to see how an insider could have committed the crimes. And they are the ones that say that Lizzie either could have been naked when she killed her parents, which people say she would not have been like Either way, it's hard for me to believe that because not for the stepmom, but for the dad, because she had so much time in between, but for the dad, because she would have to have it in her hair. It would have to be everywhere. Well, like I just, it's hard for me to like picture her being naked, being the easiest solution for her to not have blood anywhere. So you really don't think, you don't think she did it? I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to even really draw any kind of conclusion because it's so muddy, I feel like. Well, the police did not do a good job. No. And they didn't, like, stand her up and and inspect her because of the time that it happened in the Victorian age. They didn't, they couldn't be, like, handsy and say, okay, let's bring in a woman police officer and pat you down and look at what's underneath those clothes. Yeah. I just, what I find the most interesting and what I wish we knew more about was the axe murder that happened after it. Well, they did. They arrested an immigrant for that murder who say that they say that he confessed, but again, but shoddy police confess were, yes, all the time. I exactly. know, but like that would be kind of more believable to me. Well, where was this person between Abby's murder and yeah. Andrew's murder? I don't know. See, that's the whole thing. Like, if it was an outsider who did it. And I think if both of them had been murdered at the same time, we wouldn't be having this conversation because the biggest confusion is that Abby died an hour before Andrew did. So where was that person for an hour? Were they hiding in a house where Bridget and Lizzie were at? 
And the other thing is Lizzie said that she was upstairs when Mrs. Churchill went upstairs with Bridget to look for Abby. They didn't even get up all the way up the stairs before they knew that Abby was dead because the stairs became level with the floor with the floor. So they saw Abby's body. Why didn't if Lizzie had gone up the stairs, why didn't she see that? Are we sure she went up those set of stairs? Yes, she would said she claims in one of her testimonies, she claims she was coming down the stairs when her father came home. I don't know, that's what I mean by it being muddy. Like nothing really makes sense. And what about the laugh that Bridget heard? Yeah, well then you could talk about the note too, that she was yeah, where'd the snow be go? gone and then where'd the note go? And then when she was home again? Like I it's a lot of confusing things, I feel like. And they say that if if Lizzie had had been the, the the culprit, she would have had to have a lot of careful planning to kill Abby and then wait patiently for an hour and then kill her dad and then still interact with Bridget Sullivan. I mean, unless she was a sociopath. She's just going to like hang out and that's, it's all going to be fine. Yeah. And if she was a sociopath, would her sister really have stayed with her? I don't know. I think, I mean, we can't talk about (laughs) what an actual sociopath is because we have no actual idea, but just by like a Google search, whatever, a sociopath, that's why sociopaths are so scary is because they're manipulative and easy to get along with and they're charming and whatever. Her sister might have not had any idea. You know what I mean? I guess. I guess. I guess I always assume that if Lizzie was the killer, Emma knew. I don't know why that's an assumption on my... I mean, I... Because you have a sister? It's just my assumption. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. My sister's not a murderer. But I'm assuming that if she did it, then automatically Emma knew. Or at least suspected it. I guess. I don't know. They also say that the killer was obviously in a frenzy when... I mean, you don't hack someone to death. Yeah. Without being... Again, unless you're a sociopath being worked up to a certain point, it seems unlikely that she would be able to stop what she was doing and go iron handkerchiefs and hold conversations and do household duties all between the fact that she in a frenzy killed one person and then was going to do it again. Mm -hmm. There's also the glaring problem of the blood. Lizzie did not kill. If she killed her stepmother, there would have been blood on her dress. Um, She may have had time to change, but Bridget would have seen something. So, it, I mean, she could have went to the barn to clean up and everything because the barn did have water. There's also um, some writers who say that Lizzie and Bridget planned the murders together. Yeah, I don't know, though. And that when Bridget went to Alice Russell's house, she took the hatchet with her. I think it's more believable if, if there's going to be two people. I think it's more believable that Lizzie had somebody help her. That was never talked about. Right. I think like, that's more there believable was a, than the maid. Another helping. maid, yeah. They say that um if the with that theory, they say that they use it to explain the testimony that each woman gave the day of the murder, never implicating each other. Like they never said anything bad. Like Lizzie never ever pinned anything on Bridget. She protected Bridget and Bridget, vice versa, mm-hmm. did her best to protect Lizzie. Although Bridget was one of the witnesses for the prosecution. She wasn't a pro- she was not a witness for the defense. She really still never said anything bad about Lizzie. And um they say that that the other reason why they think this too is that Abby weighed close to two hundred pounds. How did Bridget nor Lizzie hear Abby fall to the ground? Yeah. But then again, if they were outside, who knows the timing of it? 
So it seems hard to believe that Lizzie did commit the murders for all the reasons that we said, like this, you know, the blood, all that other stuff. It doesn't mean that she wasn't guilty in other ways. In other words, um, while she may not have actually handled the hatchet, she may have known who did. So another theory is that um, Emma could have done it. it. It's been noted that with some suspicion how she may have arranged an alibi in herself claiming to be 15 miles away in Fairhaven, but actually returned to Fall River, hid upstairs in the Borden house, committed the murders, and then returned to Fairhaven, where she then received the telegram from Dr. Bowen. Once Lizzie is accused, the two sisters worked together to protect each other. Later, the women had a falling out over their father's estate and Lizzie's alleged affair with Nancy O'Neill. However, neither one of them ever spoke of the murder again. So other people believe that Emma... Really wasn't even in Fairhaven. Yeah, but that's the thing with this case. I feel like if you break up each part that's like suspicious, you have a different suspect. Like she's a suspect because it took her so long to get on a train to come back. So it makes sense that maybe she wasn't in Fairhaven to begin, Fairhaven with. To begin with. And that's why she didn't take the first train out of Fairhaven. But that's why it's hard for me to pick something in this case because... If you break it up in all these small spots, everyone's a suspect. Yeah, right. So it's like it's hard to look at it and pick one person. Writer Victoria Lincoln proposed in 1967 that Lizzie may have been sort of in a psychic, psychotic state where she, it's they call it like reverse amnesia, where she doesn't even remember that she did it. Yeah. Which, okay, that's not even, I mean, it's really... To commit a murder like that, yes, I think you, that could happen in a fit of rage. But to have it planned where she killed one person and then waited an hour and then killed another, come on. Yeah. That would take you out of that state. But another prominent theory suggests that Lizzie was physically and sexually abused by her father, which drove her to commit the murders, like plan the murders and commit the murders. There's little evidence to support this, but incest was not a topic that would have been discussed at that time at all. And different type, the types of methods for collecting physical evidence would have been different for in 1892. This theory was actually mentioned in local papers at the time of the murders and then was revisited by um, a lady named Marcia Carlisle in a 1992 essay for reasons I'm going to get to and I'm not buying that. Mystery author Edward McBain in his 1984 novel Lizzie suggested that Borden committed the murders after being caught. Now, this is the most outrageous one. That Lizzie had committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian clinch with Sullivan, with Bridget. That her and Bridget were really lesbians. And Abby <sighs> walked in on them. So Abby had caught Lizzie and Sullivan together and had reacted with horror and disgust and that Lizzie had killed Abby with a candlestick. When Andrew returned home, she confessed to him, but killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. Okay. What? That doesn't even make sense. No, seriously, there's a whole book written about this theory. So now Abby's killed with a candlestick? That Abby is killed. It's not really a hatchet. That it was the end of a candlestick. Okay. Because Abby caught Bridget and Lizzie together. And was disgusted and horrified. So Lizzie just, you know, hit her on the head a bunch of times while she was making the bed. And then Andrew came home and she told Andrew what she had done. 
and Andrew reacted in horror and disgust, so she killed him too. But mm. he was asleep on the couch. Right. So. I'm going to go now. Yeah, that's a whole book about that. He also, this author also um, speculates that Sullivan disposed of the hatchet somewhere afterwards, which other people have said that too, that Bridget was in on it. And when, uh, when um, Lizzie sent her running to go get people, that she disposed of the hatchet somewhere else. But how would that have never been found? She went across the street, right? Or no? She went no, she, she originally went just across the street. I don't know, dropped it in some butcher. The police didn't look, they didn't search the neighborhoods. Yes. In later years, um, Lizzie was rumored to have been, obviously, in love with women with the Nance O'Neill thing, but there's never been any speculation about Sullivan. She found other employment after the murders and later married a man she met while working as a maid. And when she died in 1948, she allegedly gave a deathbed confession to her sister, stating that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. As in, she knew Lizzie did it, but nobody says what she that what she changed, what she lied about, basically on the stand. And again, I want to go back to the fact that's kind of bullshit too, because Bridget was she was one of the witnesses for the prosecution. She wasn't one of the witnesses for the defense. So, right. yeah, not that's no. Others noted that uh, Sullivan could have been a, a suspect or could have done it for retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day. The day of the murders was unusually hot, and at the time she was still covering from the mysterious illness that the whole household had. So what, she was just supposed to get so angry that someone asked her to do something that... Yeah, that she killed Abby and then waited an hour and then killed... Yeah, no. Mm. Uh, William Borden, who is suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son, Mm -hmm. was noted as a possible suspect by a man named Arnold Brown, who surmised in his book, which is called Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, and The Final Chapter, that William may have tried and failed to extort money from his father, who coincidentally committed suicide just not long after the trial. According to his theory, Lizzie, Emma, John Morse, Dr. Bowen, and Andrew Jennings all conspired to keep his involvement secret because of the illegitimate status and a claim that he might make against the estate if his relationship with Borden's was found out. Allegedly, William was making demands on his father, who was in the process of writing a new will. The new will comes up again. Borden rejected the boy, and William became enraged. He first killed Mrs. Borden, and then after hiding in the house with Lizzie's knowledge, killed his father as well. Conspirators then paid William off or threatened him or both, and decided that Lizzie would allow herself to be suspected and tried for the murders, knowing that she could always identify the real killer should that be necessary. It's actually, it's been a long belief. It's, it's been favored. That theory has been favored for many, many years. Yeah. That there was an illegitimate son. However, an author named Leonard Rebello did extensive research on William Borden in the Browns book, and he was able to prove that he was not Andrew Borden's son. But that doesn't mean anything to me because if a son showed up saying, hey, you're my dad, unless this man was the most faithful man in the world... He still could have been saying he was right. The son. There was yeah. no way for him to prove yes or no. William Andrew would have had the choice to believe him or not. Yeah. So this man saying, "Oh no, no, no," he did not have an illegitimate son. But there's no way that he could have said that. Yeah. You can't say that now because their DNA isn't available. So yeah. that doesn't even make sense. Um, but someone else says that 
they think that the prominent suspect was John Morse, which I lean towards that a lot too. Is that the visitor? That's the uncle. Okay, yeah. He rarely met with the family after his sister died, but just happened to be sleeping in the house the night before the murders. But then didn't he leave? He just went down the street. He didn't leave, leave in the morning. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to blame Emma, who supposedly was 15 miles away, why not John Morse, who was just a couple blocks away? I guess. I don't know. It says that law enforcement said that Morse had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. He was considered a suspect by the police for just a short time. Um, Okay. Unless your alibi is being seen by 50 people in a room... I don't see how there's ever any ironclad alibis. Yeah, well, that's... Especially because, considering I really don't feel like the police did their job back then. Yeah. The police also um, received many confessions. A man claiming to be another illegitimate son of Andrew said he killed them and dropped the bloody hatchet from a steamboat. He said it was because Andrew had agreed that he would keep... if That he would pay him to keep quiet with a monthly stipend. But Abby learned of it and made Andrew stop paying him, which is why she he killed her also. And woman actually confessed to killing them too. No reason, but she ended up in an insane asylum. So they didn't take her seriously. The random confessions always confuse me. Right. Because why? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess people like the infamy of it. People guess, get this idea you that they... you gotta have something mentally off. Well, if you're gonna murder someone, you're not saying it either, so what's well, your point? I know, but if you didn't murder somebody and you're still confessing for some random I mean, reason... I guess that's how you still go to heaven, right? They didn't kill anybody, but they pretend like they did. I don't know. I don't know. Um, since, you know, everybody knows my obsession with Ancestry.com, I found out a little bit more about Lizzie Borden's famous kin included a number of notable people, including Gail Borden, founder of the Borden Company, you know, like Borden Salt... No, but sure. The boarding company. And um, actress Elizabeth Montgomery. Do you know who Elizabeth? You probably wouldn't. Um, She played Bewitched. She was the Mm -mm. Elizabeth Montgomery, famous, beautiful actress. This is a weird thing. Lizzie is technically related to, or let's say it the other way. Elizabeth Montgomery, Montgomery, the actress, in her family tree, you will find Lizzie Borden. Ironically... In the 1975, she did a made-for-TV movie called The Legend of Lizzie Borden. So are they related or not? They are related. Elizabeth Montgomery, the actress, is, is related, related to Lizzie Borden. And played And in 1975, her. she yeah, she was in the movie Interesting. The Legend of Lizzie Borden. I know. Because she probably wouldn't have known that. I mean, the way that we do family trees now. Yeah. There's this amazing website. I just, I, I kind of, again, people know how obsessed I am with Ancestry. And this was a really difficult episode for me not to get lost in Ancestry.com. Um, there's an, another website called FindMyPast.com, which basically you can find like who you're related to. If she did kill her parents, it's not the first murder in her family. Does this interest you at all? Sure. You know how I feel like family trees? I feel like, and, and it sounds like an Ancestry.com commercial, but um, you don't know it where... It could be. Someone sponsor us. Ancestry.com, <laughs> <laughs> where are you? Um, I don't know that you know who you are until you know where you came from. I do believe that. I know that you, you've had a friend who point blank told me he could care less who his ancestors were. Yeah. I don't. Do you feel that way? Mm, I don't feel that way. But if it was up to just me to figure it out, I probably wouldn't. 
But do you believe that you have some things from... Kind of. I mean, an example, your dad is a contractor. Like, he builds things. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. If you go back in his family tree, he comes from a long, long line of men who built... There's still homes in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, which I have not looked to see how far it is from Fall River, where their homes are built out of brick, which your great-granddad did, was a bricklayer. Those homes are still standing in Massachusetts. Right, but I don't think that's a good example. 200 years ago. I don't think that's a good example, though, because dad grew up with his dad being a contractor, and then that, like, that's just because what's been bred into you since you were young. What I, what is more interesting, which I'm surprised you didn't make this one an example, is how, like, you're so obsessed with boxing. Right. That you had a boxer in your family. Yeah. That is more interesting to me. What about the spiritualism thing? Yeah, that too. That I, I, we're talking like, like you guys know what we're talking about. I found in my, I've always been fascinated. Clearly I do a podcast on um, history, but it also has paranormal undertones. If there's paranormal part of the story, I'm going to tell you that part because I'm fascinated by that. I found out one night at 3 a.m. when I was doing my family tree that my ancestors practiced the religion of spiritualism, which is basically the belief in paranormal. I mean, it's a belief that, what it's turned into now yeah yeah but the people that died before you can help lead your life now i mean it was it was an entire religious movement we should probably do a podcast on spiritualism but what i'm saying is that i'm if lizzie was the one who committed the murder which i by the time i'm done with this i'm not fully convinced anymore that she had um in her family tree i believe it was her fifth great-grandfather thomas cornell was convicted in 1673 of burning his mother to death. Cornell, born in England, was 46-year-old and expecting his seventh child, which was his third with his second wife, Sarah, when Rebecca was found burned to death in the house that the family shared. On February 2nd, 1673, the middle-aged father reportedly had a strained relationship with many fellow inhabitants of his town in Rhode Island, including his own mother, who was then 73. But during the trial... Several months later, it was. It wasn't just testimony about his character that sent Cornell to the gallows. Rebecca's brother John Briggs took the stand to describe in a dream, in which his sister revealed from the grave that the death was far from accidental. So, he was hung for murdering his mom, mm-hmm. and the way that he was convicted was because his brother claimed to have a dream that their sister came to them and said that her burning was an accidental. He really murdered her. Right. So that's in Lizzie Borden's family tree, for those interested in the family tree angle. So who did kill Abby and Andrew Borden? It's unlikely that we'll ever know. It's also unlikely that we'll ever discover just what Lizzie and her defense counsel knew about the events in 1892. In March of 2012, the boarding case was back in the headlines when researchers at the Fall River Historical Society announced the discovery of written journals by Andrew Jennings, her defense attorney. The journals, which contain newspaper clippings, as well as interview notes Jennings made during the pretrial preparation. The extremely fragile material is currently being preserved by the museum before its contents are made to the public. Now, it's 2019. That was seven years ago that they found these journals. Mm-hmm. So I sent an email to the Historical Society 
which by the way, if you are interested at all in the Lizzie Borden case, go look up the Fall River Historical Society. They have tons of information on there. Their, their goal is to preserve the Lizzie Borden story. Um, in the file that Jennings had were two journals and the handleless hatchet were stored in a Victorian bathtub. Interesting. That's where they kept for the last, you know, million years. It's the first idea that we have about how the defense was building the case. Each journal is about 100 pages, and one contains a series of newspaper clippings indexed using lettering and number system that Jennings devised. The second contains personal notes that Jennings assembled from interviews that he conducted. Some of the individuals interviewed are people mentioned in the newspaper clippings, too. The, the grandson, Ed Waring, who's the grandson, he made the decision to keep his grandfather's journal private until his death because he feared that Jennings, who had really bad handwriting, would be misquoted by historians in the press, and he just he didn't want to put didn't it want to deal with it. Yeah. Okay. The lawyer's diaries include newspaper clippings with his notes, list of people who were interviewed, his own observations about the case, and support letters between Lizzie Borden and her father, Andrew. Now, here's the thing. If people thought finding these these old journals would sort of like give a yes or no answer to whether Lizzie committed the crimes. It doesn't, but what it did, and this is why I said earlier that you might change your mind, is that Lizzie Borden's always been portrayed as cold hearted and a brutal axe murderer. She, you know, she supposedly killed her, her parents. They wrote a freaking rhyme about it. The journals give a totally different viewpoint of her. Most of what is known about Lizzie is based on legend and outright lies. And the facts have been suppressed by fiction because fiction is more interesting to most people. In actuality, the, the, the letters that are found show that Lizzie loved her father very much and she grieved horribly after his death. Mm-hmm. She was a mess. That's why she was on morphine. And people tend to forget that. They say that her testimony was convoluted and contradictory. She was on drugs because she... Had to be calmed. Because her father was gone. Yeah. She loved her father. It also, um, the the journals and things show that, that Andrew Borden was very supportive of his daughters. That whatever they wanted or needed, they always had. That they weren't upset about living in that house. That they didn't think they lived below their station. That was the way their father wanted to live. And they loved their father dearly. So, I'm not certain why it's taking seven years for these journals to become available. But I don't know. I mean, if I get if I get a response back from the historical society, they're only open seasonally, so they don't open until I think it's this week coming up. And um, when they write me back, we'll do like a little update on bonus where, on Patreon, maybe a little bonus episode on Patreon. Why those files? Because I think those files are very important. I mean, someone held on to them for 130 years. Now, to since the murders and the trial. The, the house, like I said earlier, was is now the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum. It's a time capsule of the era when the murders took place, and it's a really quaint inn. Guests come from all over the country and are able to sleep in the room where Abby Borden was killed. But all of them do not sleep peacefully. Not all of the spirits here rest in peace, they say. Guests and staff members alike have had their strange share of experiences in the house. Some have reported the sounds of a woman weeping, Others claim to have seen a woman in Victoria-era clothing dusting the furniture and straightening the covers on all the beds. Occasionally, she even happens to do this when the guests are still in the bed. Others have heard the sound of footsteps going up and down the stairs and crossing back and forth on the floor above, even when they know that the house is empty. 
Doors open and close as well. And often muffled conversations can be heard from inside vacant rooms. One man who had very little interest in ghosts and only went there because his wife dragged him there claimed to have accompanied his wife to the inn one night and he took their luggage upstairs. The room had been perfectly made up when he entered. The bed smooth and everything in its place. Over the course of a few minutes of unpacking, he happened to look over at the bed again and saw that it was now rumpled, even though he was alone in the room and he had not been near it. With a start, he also noticed that the folds of the comforter had been moved so they corresponded to the curves of a human body. On the pillow, there was an indentation of the shape of a human head. His wife found him a few minutes later sitting in the downstairs sitting room, very pale and quite nervous. When she asked him what was wrong, he took her back upstairs to show her the strange appearance on the bed. However, when he opened the door, the pillow had been plumped up and the com- comforter looked just as it had been. That room, and they were staying in the room where Abby Borden was murdered. So, ghost stories galore. I'm sure. If you Google the Lizzie Borden house. Yeah. And it's not just about the axe murders. It's a lot about, um, a lot of people hear voices a, a lot and walking around upstairs. Yeah. So, you're not surprised the house is haunted or you're not, I'm not surprised, surprised that people say it's haunted. So, <laughs> there we go. Haley's shitting all over everything. Uh-uh, I'm just... But that house has got to have, regardless of who committed the murders. If you believe in ghosts, it's haunted, I'm sure. It is unlikely we will ever know the truth of who killed Abby and Andrew Borden. What we do know is that Lizzie Borden is still one of the most famous suspected murderers in United States history. She will forever be known as the girl who killed her parents, not because of the evidence against her, but simply because there's no evidence to prove she didn't. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Ghost.